What an awesome evening. Um, I was getting ready for my sermon this week and praying about it and thinking about it. And while I was doing that, uh, my wife was giving me a hard time about one of the books that I'm reading now. She she kind of does this. Uh, I have a reading habit where I could I could read a book about just about anything, any topic that's interesting to me, whether it's a biography or some period in history, and she just gets a kick out of what I'm reading next. I'm reading a book called The Book, and it's a book about books, about how paper got invented and the printing press. It's a real page turner. Thank you so much. Oh, what, what a great response. I couldn't tell if that was a pun or not. I've been debating it all day. One of the things that I've liked to read, too, are uh, different productivity habits that famous people have. I'll just go online and I'll hear about somebody who's written a book or an entrepreneur or somebody who has had a lot of success in life, and you can go and figure out, you know, what, what are their daily routines like, their daily rituals, and I like this just because I feel like it, in some ways, it unlocks some of the secrets of their success, maybe gives me some ideas for, for different disciplines that I could try in my life. So some of the recent ones that I found that I thought were kind of interesting, Franz Kafka, so an author and by all accounts a very weird dude, um, he worked every day in an insurance shop from 8.30 to 2.30. He would take his lunch from 2.30 to 3.30. He'd sleep from 3.30 to 7.30. From 7.30 to 11, he'd have time with his family and dinner, and then he would only do his writing from 11 to 2 a.m. So no wonder his books were so weird. Winston Churchill, this is interesting. He woke up at 7.30 every day, and he stayed in bed until 11 reading breakfast, writing, uh, reading, uh, eating breakfast, reading newspapers, and then he would dictate to his secretary. So I guess that would be the equivalent of us just staying in bed all morning, scrolling on Facebook or writing emails. 11 o'clock, he would take a bath, walk outside, and, quote, settle into work with a whiskey and soda. Not bad. 1 to 3, he'd eat lunch, work, play cards with his wife. 5 o'clock, he'd take a nap. 5.30, he'd take another bath, dinner, socializing, and then at midnight, He'd have an hour of reading before bed. It only says work here for like two hours a day. Maya Angelou, poet, author, she made sure to get a good eight hours of sleep, and she actually loved to invest in her family, her home life, her husband and kids. Uh, from 6.30 to 8 every morning, she would make sure that the whole family had breakfast together and do chores together, and then she would write from 8 to 4, and then again from 4 to 8, she would just set that aside as family time. And at 9, every night, she would read whatever she was, or she would read to her husband whatever she had written that day, and they would talk about it before bed. Steve Jobs, I was looking this up the other day, and I couldn't find a, a routine that Steve Jobs actually had, um, but he always woke up the same way. He would, first thing in the morning, get up and look in the mirror, and he would say the same thing. If today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? And he said if the answer was no for too long, he would change everything about that day. I don't know what you're routines have been like the last six months or so, what your daily habits look like, your, your productivity. I know for myself, before the, the coronavirus pandemic, I could safely say that I was a pretty scheduled person. I liked keeping a, a daily schedule. I had a pretty set rhythm. I liked to set goals and, and try to accomplish a lot of things. And I'm not saying that that's not what I'm doing now, but it's definitely not the same. That the, the way that I approach my day, my week, my month has completely changed. And it's been difficult, not going to lie. 
Uh, I wonder what your life has looked like lately. Last week, if you were here, uh, Pastor Scott preached about the reality of change and the times that we're living in and quoting Mike Tyson that everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And we got punched in the face and we didn't just have to change our plans. The plans just went out the window. Whatever we thought this year was going to be like, it is not how this year has gone. Now, for some of you, that may not be the case. I know quite a few people who are uh, settling into great rhythms, and and you're doing awesome, and I'm really glad for you. Um, I was talking to my daughter the other day, well, a couple weeks ago, actually, before school started. She's in first grade. June's over there. She'll be embarrassed. No, she won't be. And we were talking uh, on the swing set at her new school, just kind of getting ready for the year. And, you know, my wife and I have shared our thoughts and impressions about this season. And and our kids are young. So we felt like maybe this wouldn't be such a big shock to their system. And the educational expectations for first grade aren't as high as what they will be later on. So maybe this won't be so bad. And as we were talking about school starting up, she just very plainly said, Dad, I wish it could be like it was last year. And if she's six and that's how she feels, then I think it might be more compounded the older you are and the more experience you have with how the last six months have gone for you. That question, why can't it just go back to the way it was? That's what what stood out to me when she asked it. And, and, and in my heart, when I've asked that same question this year, and when I, when I hear it in conversations with, with you or with people I talk to, I just want it to go back to the way it was. It makes me think of the, the Bible reading that we had for tonight in Exodus and, and the experience that the Hebrew people had coming out of captivity in Egypt. And we're in Exodus 19 and 20, and we're looking at the Ten Commandments. But before we get there, we need to kind of flesh out the, this, this, this image of, of what the people in Egypt were, were up to at the time and what their experience was to really understand what's going on. And so we have kind of the Hollywood understanding of the Exodus story. It's been done a bunch and we, we see on screen and maybe even have a, a common understanding of the Ten Commandments story and the parting of the Red Sea and all of that. But, you know, Hollywood needs to present it in such a way that it's interesting to look at where the Bible actually writes it down and there are some nuances that we can miss if we're not careful. One of them, so, so God says in Exodus, he, he has seen his people in slavery in Egypt for generations, hundreds of years. They've been in captivity. Not not just one generation, but for so long that, that they simply do not know another way of life, another way of how they can be in the world. And it says that God hears the cries of his people, God sees their suffering, and he decides he's going to act to liberate his people from captivity, and he chooses Moses to be the leader who's going to lead them out. And in the Hollywood portrait, you see a Moses who is in awe of the situation and, and totally humbled by the situation. But in the Bible, we have a very reluctant participant in the person of Moses. He is not excited about the idea of approaching the leader of the most powerful army in the entire world and telling him, you need to let 600,000 slaves go now. He's, he comes up with all kinds of excuses. I, I'm, I'm, I'm inarticulate, and I'm a, wanted, I'm a wanted murderer back there. I can't go there and do that. And God meets him there, and he comes up with answers to his questions, and, and he comes up with solutions to his worries. And then Moses finally agrees and goes in and, and tells Pharaoh, you need to let the Hebrew people go, but for a specific reason. He says, you need to let the Israelites go so that they can worship the Lord their God. Now, this would have been the most shocking affront to Pharaoh, not just the letting of them go to be free and no longer be in slavery, but so that they can worship their God. Now, Pharaoh in their religious system was God. 
not just divinely appointed, but divine himself. For So for Moses to say, this whole group of people needs to go and worship someone else, that can't happen. Moses refuses, and, and we get the ten plagues of Egypt and God showing his power and his, and his wonders and, and showing who he really is, that he is God and not Pharaoh and nobody else. And finally, after all of the, the death and destruction and disease that's wrought, Pharaoh finally urges the people of Israel out. In the middle of the night, it says, he says, get out, we're all going to die, you need to leave. They didn't even have time to bake bread to leave, they just had to go. And now they're free. And, and again, the Hollywood portrayal of this is, you know, that's the end of the story. It's they're, they're free from slavery, and, and they're no longer captives, and we can rejoice, and it's triumphant. But that's not even close to the beginning of the story. They last a couple of days. They get to the Red Sea, and they're camped there. And that gives Pharaoh enough time to realize what's happened, that he has just let his entire workforce go. And he says he realized that they can't let the, 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 the skills of the Hebrews go what they can bring to his community. And so they get their chariots and their army together. They go to pursue them. And the Hebrew people who are newly freed slaves, again, they're not warriors. They have known, no, they have known only slavery their entire lives. They see the army coming at them and this, this impassable sea of, of water on the other side. They've never even been there before. I think in our minds it's really hard to put ourselves in the shoes of, of a Hebrew slave at this point in time in history. Even though they only lived a few miles away from the Red Sea, they'd never been there before, likely. They're seeing all of this for the very first time. An army on one side, an ocean on the other side. And rather than f- crying out to the God who has displayed his wonders to set them free in the first place, the miracles that God did to ensure their, their liberation... When they're confronted with an obstacle, they they go to Moses and they say, how could you? As our leader, how could you do this to us? And, And this is what they say to Moses in Exodus chapter 14. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. We want to go back. Why can't we go back to the way it was before? Sure, we were in slavery, but at least we knew who we were back there. Sure, we were made to do hard labor every single day, but we knew it was expected. It was familiar. It was comfortable. Now here we are, and we don't know who we are, what we're supposed to do, where we're supposed to go, and we might die. Can't we just go back to the way things used to be? And this isn't the only time it happens. One chapter later, so God miraculously provides a solution, parts the Red Sea, they cross over on dry ground, and and God destroys the Egyptian army, and they're free. They make it another couple of weeks, and the food and water starts to run out, and the complaint is the exact same thing. The people who have seen God do miracles in front of their eyes, again, grumble, the Bible says to Moses, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Now, how bad is that? Not only do we want to go back to how it used to be, it would have been better if we had just died before any of this even happened. There, in Egypt, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve to death. Why can't we go back to how it used to be? Sure, we were in slavery and made to do hard labor all day, every single day, but at least we had food, at least we had purpose, at least we had an identity. We knew what to expect. And now we don't have any of those things. And I feel like it can be the same thing for us in our lives when we confront these obstacles in front of us. 
And make no mistake about it, this is a significant moment for us. This is a significant obstacle in our history, in our lifetime. A lot will depend on how we respond in the next couple of months as a community. And for a lot of us, it will mean letting go of the idea that we can go back to the way things used to be. I wish we could. You know, and that's what I keep hearing. I keep feeling it in my heart sometimes. But I wonder what what we're asking when we're asking that question. Why can't we go back to the way things were? What are we saying we want to go back to? Where has God led us from? I wonder if as the past starts to drift away in our rearview mirror, if we might just be looking at it with a a little bit more of a rose-colored filter. If the past is looking a little bit better than it really actually was. Like, like a year ago today, it's supposed to be the start of, you know, college football season, and I miss that. I miss watching my Hawkeyes on TV. I miss going to games. I miss sports. I like sports. I wish we could go back. But within that picture that I have painted, I'm leaving out the reality that on weekends when there were football games, church attendance goes down by a third, a half, So what are we saying when we say, I wish I could go back to the way things were? I wish I could go back to a time when I could choose whether or not to come to church and choose not to so I could go to a game. There's a a Christian song that got written in the early 2000s by a Christian artist named Sarah Groves. It's called Painting Pictures of Egypt, and in the chorus it it says this, I've been painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what it lacked. And the future feels so hard that I want to go back, but the places that used to fit me cannot hold the things I've learned. These roads were closed off to me while my back was turned. What pictures are we painting of the past life that we had, and we're leaving bits out that weren't healthy? Again, same time last year, this building was full of people. Not, not just on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, but almost every day of the week. And it was great to have so many people in the building almost every night doing some kind of ministry for people who were hurting and people coming to Christ and students growing in their faith and children feeling cared for and loved. And, and, and it was amazing almost every night. And it was exhausting. And the picture that I have of a year ago of that building full of activity every single night, I conveniently leave out that I didn't really have a whole lot of time to eat dinner with my family. I didn't really make a lot of time to spend with my wife and my kids because I was doing ministry in a building full of people. Conveniently, I leave out of that picture that even when I was spending time with them, I probably wasn't at my best because I was tired. What are we really saying that we want to go back to? A time when we're so busy with work that we don't give time to the people who matter more. I remember a year ago before George Floyd, before Breonna Taylor, before so, so many other African-American brothers and sisters who have died and exposed the tragedy of terrible systemic racism that continues to plague our country. What are we saying when we say we want to go back to the way things used to be? I wish I could go back to a time when we were blissfully ignorant that that was still a problem. Or now, because it's been exposed, do we get to sit here and confront it and have hard conversations and figure out how to heal and move forward? Or are we spending all of our time looking in the rearview mirror thinking that 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 used to be, you know, that used to be it back then? 
Those were the good old days, back before we had to pay attention to any of this or deal with any of this. What are we really saying when we say, I wish it could go back to the way it was? What we are actually asking for when we make that statement is we are asking to go back to captivity. We are asking to go back to a time when we were enslaved to bad habits, endless distractions, overwork, and injustice for oppressed people. That is what we're actually saying. Because in this moment, God is leading us into somewhere beyond where we are today. God is actually taking steps forward in our lives and pointing a way to the promised land. The sermon series that we're starting today and for the rest of September is called A Pathway to a New Normal. We're not trying to figure out as a church, how do we get back to doing things the way we used to do them? Because obviously, God is doing something in our lifetimes because he expects us to do something different with our lives. God is doing something in our lifetimes because he expects us to do something different with our lives. A pathway to a new normal. How are we going to do ministry when we get back into the building? Are we going to keep every single night occupied and take people away from their families? How are you going to get back to work when you go back to your offices? Are you going to dive right back in head first and just go back to to, to business as usual? When, When the Israelites were experiencing this newfound freedom in the book of Exodus, something that they had never known before, God recognized what the problem was. You see, the problem wasn't that they were, that they were ungrateful of the opportunity to be free. The problem was that they didn't know who they really were. All they had ever experienced, and their parents, 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 parents had ever known, is slavery, captivity, that way of life. And that's what they wanted to go back to. Couldn't we just go back to when we were slaves, to when we were servants, because that's what we know. And God says, I care about you too much and love you too much to leave you in that state. So I'm going to give you a pathway to a new normal. And God gives them the law, an amazing gift that in our eyes looks restrictive, it looks cruel. But imagine what that law looked like for a group of slaves coming into newfound freedom with absolutely no structure and no identity. And here is God, the God of the universe, saying, rule number one, law number one, I'm going to be your God. The the Hebrew is interesting here, and I don't want to dive too far into it, first of all, because I don't fully understand it. Second of all, it's really complicated, and I don't have anything up here to show you about Hebrew grammar. Um, The way, well, the the word that we use in Hebrew that we translate into English, commandments, is the word dabar. And that's the Hebrew word that means word. Like I'm reading a book about books, that's the Hebrew word that means word. And even in modern-day Judaism, they don't call these Ten Commandments, they call them the Ten Words. Ten words from God. And and starting back in Exodus 19, just before where we get these Ten Commandments, it actually shares the idea of what God is trying to communicate to the people in giving these ten words of promise to them. Exodus 19 verse 5 says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possessions. The way that the construction works in Hebrew is, is in order to make something negative, you add a, a little negative indicator at the front of the sentence, and then you know everything after that is negative. But then you use verb endings, tenses, to help show what kind of 
tense that's in, obviously. And in all of these commandments, what we call commandments, it's the future tense. So when we're reading these 10 words of the Bible, you know, we have this 500-year-old English translation that is thou shalt not. And that's fine. You can read it that way. But in the future tense with a negation, it more reads you will not. From here going forward, you will not have other gods besides me. And again, we read this as instructive, as restrictive, maybe even as just a helpful uh, statement against idolatry. Definitely, you shouldn't have other gods before you, but what the Hebrews were hearing is you won't. You simply will not have other gods. And think about what they were just coming out of. Hundreds of years where the religion of many gods in Egypt were a part of the system that was keeping them enslaved. That their entire existence, all they had known of what gods were, were oppressive, cruel, harmful beings that were out to get them. And here's God saying, you don't have to worry about that anymore. If you commit to me with your whole heart, if you agree by this covenant, another word for a wedding, these are almost like wedding vows. You know, an officiant standing up and saying, when you enter into a life with God, this is what you can expect life to be like. And the first thing is, you don't have to worry about who's going to look after you eternally. That God is a God for you. And he loves you. And you don't need to have any other gods. And then the, the scripture reading for today, in a relationship with God, you will have a Sabbath day. You get a day off. Now imagine, again, your entire life, all day, every day, hard labor for nothing. And God says, not only do you have to not worry about who, who is your God, you get a day off. And not only do you get a day off, it's expected that you take time off to rest. What an amazing gift. What a blessing for people who have only ever known hardship and hard labor for their God to say, I'm your God and you get to take a day off every single week. And, and we, we read that today and we treat it, again, as, as, as an instructive mandate, this, this religious thing that you ought to do or, or, or should do. And even in Jesus' day, that was how they were treating the Sabbath, not as a gift or a blessing, to take a day every single week and remember who God is and what he has done for you, but treating it like some other sort of religious thing that you need to check a box for. And Jesus said, that's not what the Sabbath is for. It's a day that you get to take. It's a part of God's rhythm for a healthy life. And it points out that, that not only is it part of our relationship with God, it's a part of our humanity. We as human beings need rest. Your body will shut down if you do not sleep. It will make you sleep. And God knows that. And he doesn't want that to be a part of your life, overworked, without any sleep at all, without any rest. But he also wants you to remember that you are not God of your life. You see, I think behind all of this is that first word from God, that first commandment, to have no other gods, including yourself. When we work ourselves to death, that's really us saying, I don't trust you, God, that you're looking out for me, that you can provide for me, that you can take care of me, that this obstacle in front of me that I can't see to the other side of, you don't have a plan. I don't trust you. I'm going to take over, God. I think I know better. I think I can do better. So I'm going to work 80 hours instead of 40 hours this week because I think the harder I work, maybe on the other side, I'll, what? What is the end of that? That you'll get to be in charge? You'll still have to sleep. 
And the Bible says God neither sleeps nor slumbers. God is always on the job. And he says one day a week, you don't have to be. And he says make it holy. It's not just a day off for the sake of taking a day off. It's a day off to, to set aside and reflect and remember all of what God has done for you. I think when we, we get caught in the rhythm of just seeing obstacles and things in our path and hardships, feeling bombarded by those changes time after time without ever taking a time to stop and think about who God really is, the plan that he has, the control that he has over all of this, when we don't do that, we will continue to look back and wish like it was how it was before and be tempted to go back into captivity where it was familiar and comfortable, and slavery. Slavery to bad habits, slavery to sin, slavery to fear. Whatever it was behind you, God says, put it behind you. I'm giving you a pathway to a new normal, and that includes a better rhythm for rest for you, for all of us. I think if this was a year ago, and I was preaching the same sermon, I would probably qualify it with something like, now, I'm not saying working hard is not a bad thing to do. I'm not going to do that today. I really think there is something wrong with the rhythm of our work in our culture. The 110% attitude that we have that we're so proud of. Do you suppose maybe God is using this season to try and set us free from that? Something you can think about. But it's something that Jesus actually addresses too. Jesus saw it in his lifetime. When, when we're, this year, 2020, is all eyes on Jesus, and how did Jesus approach this? In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Everybody say rest. What does it mean to you when you say that word? Do you get any of it? Does it cause you to feel a certain way? I don't know. It's a word we sort of dismiss because work is a higher priority for us. And Jesus says, I want you to think about what rest really looks like. Resting in God. Resting in your relationship with Jesus who has done all of the work necessary for your eternal salvation. There is nothing that you can do in this life to earn more than what God has already given you for free. You can't earn God's favor any more than he already has for you. You can't earn God's love more than he already has for you. You can't earn God's salvation more than he's already given to you for free. And maybe it's time for us to stop trying and to start resting in God's love, in God's salvation, in God's work that he has done for us. And it's that that we remember every time we come to the table of communion together. And practice Sabbath rest as a community where we intentionally take time to remember and to give thanks for the promise of new life. Not the old dead life that we want to leave behind. The new life that's ahead of us. And maybe we can't see it yet. Maybe we can't quite see what the promised land looks like. But it is there. Jesus is pointing us in that direction if we follow him. And communion and rest and the Sabbath all help with us. Keeping us staying forward on all of it.